Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I've got Burr Settles here. Burr is Research Director at Duolingo. Burr, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. I am super excited to have an opportunity to chat with you. I am uh, a bit of an avowed linguophile myself and a user of the Duolingo app, but uh, it has been a while. I don't know what my points are, my XPs are at this point. But super excited to to chat with you about some of the ways that Duolingo uses AI to deliver the app. Uh, before we get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal journey, how you came to work on machine learning and AI and uh, in language education in particular. Yeah, uh, it's not a straightforward path, as one might imagine. So I... My introduction, well, I've always loved languages. My aunt was bilingual in uh, English and French and worked as a translator. And so she started me on French when I was pretty young. So I've always enjoyed languages, never really thought to study it, and certainly knew nothing about natural language processing uh, when I was growing up. I went to a small liberal arts school where I double majored, planned to double major in art, studio art and math, but then quickly kind of fell into computer science as kind of a mathematical art form. Ended up going to grad school thinking I was going to go into distributed computing because I thought that was cool at the time. Again, first year, took a machine learning course, kind of fell in love with that. Nice. And then natural language processing wasn't really in the, the scope just yet. I finished my master's degree at the University of Wisconsin and intended to kind of graduate and go get a job at that point. But then I met a girl and she still had a year left in her program. And so I stuck around and started just taking linguistics and biology classes and then uh, I started doing research with a professor in the biostatistics department using machine learning to do information extraction on biomedical texts. For several years, I worked on that. So biomedical and natural language processing was a pretty big thing in the mid-2000s. And during that process, the kinds of annotations you need to train biomedical NLP you know, data sets uh, for those models, it's extremely expensive because you have to find people with PhD level knowledge of molecular biology and enough kind of linguistic sense to, to know like what semantic role labeling might look like in this domain. Mm-hmm. So it was very slow and expensive, which then tipped my interest into active learning, uh, which is machine learning algorithms that participate in their own training so they can ask questions. The typical way this is done is you've got a bunch of unlabeled data as we do did in this case. Uh, you have a, a, an oracle, in this case, a human expert, who's very expensive. Uh, So you have them annotate a little bit of data and then the model learns from that and then it can quickly analyze all of the unlabeled data uh, and then say, this, I'm I'm pretty squared away on this and this, I understand these things, but here's some things that confuse me, can you please label these for me? And then that way you can kind of steepen the learning curve or flatten the learning curve depending on how you're thinking about it. And so I switched my, I did my PhD in that kind of work And in general, was just kind of interested, like that was where I did kind of the language and the natural language processing. And this interaction between humans and machines, this interplay using, figuring out how to best use a human resource in training machine learning systems uh, was something that interested me a lot. 
Then I came to Carnegie Mellon as a postdoc for a few years to work on on this uh, Read the Web project. And then the opportunity, Duolingo was spinning out of Carnegie Mellon as a company about the time my postdoc wrapped up, which is almost eight years ago now. And I suddenly realized I was interested in flipping the script on active learning. And instead of figuring out how to best use people to teach machines, how can we best use machines to teach people? And the fact that it was kind of this intersection of AI, computer science, building apps. Uh, I've, I've never been a pure academic. Like I've always wanted to build things that create technology that you then build something with. And then language and cognitive science, it was just like uh, the perfect combination. So I've been here ever since. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, are you also a, a language hobbyist and user of the app or did you kind of settle in on French and kind of push deep in that direction? I've dabbled in many languages. I've used the app to learn a bit of German and Spanish and Portuguese, but I, French is the only one I could probably have any sort of conversation in. Yeah, I, I'm probably similar, although my French is a lot rustier than I like it to be. I picked that up in, in college. I picked up Spanish was like my high school, you know, junior high, high school language. And uh, it tends to be generally rusty, but it kind of comes out when it, you know, needs to. But I've also, I'm a dabbler as well. And my typical pattern is to, you know, spend anything from a month to three months before a trip cramming a language, essentially. Uh, and then, you know, go use that knowledge to enjoy the trip and then kind of flush the cash immediately afterwards because it's really hard to keep that, you know, to get it to stick. But I've learned a little bit of Portuguese, uh, do Brasil from Duolingo, a little bit of Mandarin. Uh, what else on Duolingo? A little bit of Spanish, I think, with Duolingo. I think I'm missing missing one. I've also tried to teach myself uh, a bit of Amharic and a bit of Arabic quite a while ago. But it's, it's always great to kind of chat with uh, someone else that shares that interest. Yeah, well, it's pretty amazing to work at a company where everybody shares that. <laughs> I mean, there I think there are 30. I can only imagine. I think there are 30 different languages spoken among the employees here. I think there's about 30 different languages that we teach too. Not the same overlap, but there are enough people who speak a variety of languages that within the company we have these language tables, uh, like a German Stammtisch or uh, Table Portuguese. And, you know, people get together. Uh, well, b- back when it was possible and kosher to sort of like physically get together. Right. Actually, that's extended. I think the Portuguese table, uh, there's a. Yeah, just they, everybody orders takeout from like this Portuguese restaurant and then like dials into a Zoom room. Uh, oh, very cool. That, that's awesome. Uh, and so I could geek out on uh, just the language side of this, but I'm not sure that many of the, you know, I have no idea how many of the listeners would be interested in that conversation. So maybe let's shift gears a little bit to talking about some of the ways that Duolingo uses AI. And it it may not be a surprise to folks that know the some of the history of the company and like spinning out of Carnegie Mellon, but there's a bit of machine learning focus from the very beginning to the way the company approached this problem of language learning, as well as the, the broader issue of building a business around it. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I was one of the first folks Let's see. I, I think I was number 20 or so. I joined about, about six months after it spun out. 
Okay. Um, and so I started working on machine learning things from day one. And I think a lot of people, th this is changing, but like three or four years ago, if I'd go to a, an uh, NLP or machine learning conference, people would be kind of like, how does, you know, Duolingo, how would that use any machine learning? And, and it sort of like surprised people. It doesn't seem to be a surprise anymore, but the way we think about it is particularly for language education, but I, I think any kind of education, the, the, the best kind of education you can get is a one-on-one -on -one tutor. Okay? Yeah. And, but the, the problem with that is very few people have access to a good one-on-one -on -one tutor subject matter expert for whatever they're trying to learn. And so we believe that the best way that you can scale that kind of experience is with AI. So it's not necessarily to replace good teachers or good tutors, but most people don't have access to them anyway. So by using AI, uh, we can sort of democratize education, sort of. And then if, if you take that sort of approach and you think, okay, well, what do good tutors do? I claim that they've got three, at least three properties, important properties. One is that they know the content really well. Uh, in this case, the language that they're teaching and how different aspects of the language align to different kind of proficiency levels. Two is they know how to keep you engaged and excited with the material. And then three, and maybe most importantly, they, they have a way of getting inside your head. So because of this one-on-one -on -one time that they have with you, they see what you get right, they see what you get wrong, they see what you used to be getting wrong and you're starting to get right. They get a sense for how quickly you forget things. I mean, a lot of educational technology is focused on assessment or or like a shorter term semester long sort of learning, not lifelong learning. So forgetting usually is not baked into the models. Yeah. And so, so anyway, going back to those three things, the content, keeping you engaged and getting inside your head, we've essentially arranged our AI kind of research program here around those three things. So we've got machine learning projects going on in those three areas, broadly speaking. So we've got projects to help develop efficiently, like high quality content um, that's aligned to a proficiency scale and then uh, to keep people engaged and then also to, to model what people know so that we can personalize uh, their experiences. And the story that I was thinking of, and I wonder the extent to which it continues, it was from years ago, it was kind of this idea that, you know, Duolingo had this, um, the, the company as a whole wanted to make uh, uh, an impact on language learning. And the recognition was that, you know, yeah, there are a bunch of, you know, folks in wealthy countries that could like, you know, spend a bunch of time, you know, hobby learning languages, but the biggest impact on a, from a global perspective was helping people uh, at, massive scale learn languages that would increase their economic position, you mm -hmm. know, languages like English. Uh, I forget the specific technique or approach that was taken, but uh, there were some things that were being done early on using machine learning to like ingest articles and identify, you know, turn those articles into, into lessons again, kind of at a scale beyond the way a handcrafted, Portuguese language track might work for the Duolingo that many of us here know. You know does, that, does any of that sound familiar or am I making that up? <laughs> You're not making that up. We've kind of pivoted since then. So the original okay. business model for Duolingo, the, the idea was that we can give away a free education. So the app is free and it's still free. Yeah, uh, You can go through an entire course without ever 
you know, paying us anything. And the idea at the time was that as, as part of doing the lessons, some of the exercises that you did were translating documents and a lot of it was Wikipedia articles for a while. We actually did have clients uh, like I think CNN was one of our clients. Uh, Buzzfeed would give us articles written in English that they wanted translated into their Latin American properties. And so we had tens or hundreds of thousands of Spanish speakers who were learning English on Duolingo that as part of their exercises were translating documents, kind of crowdsourced translating documents yeah. from English into Spanish or Portuguese which then we sold back to CNN and BuzzFeed and then they published on their website. That was like the original, you know, business model idea. It ended up not really to be sustainable. So we've shut that down and pivoted it, pivoted a bit. The primary business model now is, is twofold. One is in, I'm trying to remember exactly when 2014, 2015 or so we launched the Duolingo English test. Okay. Um, which is a high stakes English language proficiency exam. And the, the sort of test that if you're an international student wanting to study in the United States, you could take as proof of English proficiency. But the, the idea again, keeping with our, our, our mission of being as accessible as possible, it was a test that was much less expensive. It was, it's $49 and you can take it online anytime, anywhere. And it's a computer adaptive test. And, and so the idea there is that the education is free and then to certify what you've learned, that is a, a small fee. So that's part of the, uh, uh, the business model. And then another part of the business model is a subscri subscription service that is not a paywall on the educational content, but uh, it does unlock certain gamified you know, features, mm -hmm. uh, things that... Uh, make it easier. I've, I actually am not familiar with all the sets of uh, features in the offering right now. Like there's a progress quiz uh, that you can take to sort of like track your own learning uh, over time. I remember the big thing for me being, I think if you are a pro subscriber, you can download your lessons. Uh, and right, offline. Or on a plane and stuff like that. Or the subway. Uh, yeah, or on a subway. Uh, maybe not so big a deal now, you know, with people quarantined at home. But uh, when I was actively using the app, that was the one thing that I think maybe even made me do pro for a little while. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, lockdown has been really great for us and a lot of, you know, most yeah. other kind of like tech app. Uh, most oh, yeah. all the me metrics that we look at have at least doubled with the Duolingo English test. That is that's gone up, I think, 2000% or something like that. Wow. All the test centers for all for the traditional tests are closed. So basically, in many parts of the world, the Duolingo English test was the only option for English language proficiency testing for uh, people who were hopeful to study in the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. Well, so let's push a little bit deeper into those three areas. I think the first you mentioned was the content side. Yeah, so uh, a few examples of things that we're doing there. I, I mentioned earlier uh, proficiency standards. So there's something called the Common European Framework of Reference. Yep. This is a descriptive framework of the kinds of things you can do at various levels of proficiency. Uh, so it's split up into these six levels. There's an A, B, and C, and then a high and low for each one of those. So A1 is super 
super beginner, survival English uh, or survival Spanish. And then as you move up, A2, B1, B2 is kind of the threshold for being like you could study probably in a, or work, get a job in, in a company or a university that where that language is the medium. Uh, you'll probably still have an accent to make grammatical errors and stuff, but you can converse abstractly in that language. And then the C levels are like much closer to fluent. And so we, we needed tools to help align our curricula to a standard like that. So we picked the CEFR for whatever reason. It was, it was as good as any. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have been lots of work building vocabulary profiles uh, like this is an A1 level piece of vocabulary, like brother and sister and Monday and Tuesday and the, you know, those are kind of A1 level words, whereas contributory, well, actually that's not a word, or is it? Crepuscular, like, that's like a C2 level word. Mm-hmm. And so lots of work had gone into creating these profiles, but only for English. And we have our, our in-house language and curriculum developers had put a lot of work into aligning our English curricula to the CEFR. But we wanted to then duplicate that for French and Spanish. And the data resources just didn't exist. So we could train machine learning models to project arbitrary English words onto this, onto a CEFR scale, just treating it like an ordinal regression problem. But we needed to be able to you know, do that for other languages too. And so we had this idea of using multilingual word embeddings and language normalized frequencies and things like that as features in a model that we can essentially train on English data and then make predictions on Spanish data or French data or Portuguese data or German data. And so we created that. And and there's a tool. We lovingly called it Cephr, the CFR, as some people pronounce it as Cephr. We, we've actually released this publicly. So if you go to cefr.duolingo.com, uh, you can explore the English and Spanish uh, versions of that. Internally, we also support, I think, half a dozen or more languages. And our curriculum developers use that. Uh, we also have features called Duolingo Stories. We have Duolingo Podcasts in French and Spanish. Uh, and we have some other kind of top secret things that we're experimenting with. And the teams that develop content for that are using those tools to help make sure that, hey, this is stuff we're targeting toward A1 beginner learners. This is stuff we're targeting toward B1 intermediate learners. And we use these tools to kind of check the content and then also highlight the things that are maybe too too advanced or too simple. And those can be nudged in either direction accordingly. Mm, interesting. So how do you go about training a multilingual word embedding? Are you doing that based on kind of bidirectional word pairs in a bunch of languages or is it uh, another approach? Yeah, when we were when we were doing this work, we actually didn't train the embeddings ourselves. We used oh, okay. uh, I, I forgot which embeddings we were using at the time. This was about two or three years ago. Uh, we were first building the, the CEFR tool. But we used some off-the-shelf embeddings. We used some frequencies from, uh, I think, Wikipedia and movie subtitles, uh, and that provided enough information to get, you know, pretty accurate scalings and pro- projections in the English data. And then when we kind of qualitatively inspected the projections in the other languages, you know, the content matter experts found them, you know, useful. Mm-hmm. And was the idea that you would 
develop a word list for a given course or level of a course and then feed it into the Sefer tool and it would give you an approximate, it would try to predict the language level of the person who would be taking that, who would successfully complete that level? Right. So a lot of our courses, when we were first developing them, and when I say first developing them, I'm talking about like seven years ago. So like yeah. the Spanish for English course was built by our co-founder and CEO, Luis Van An, who's from Guatemala and, and bilingual in English and Spanish, as well as, you know, some other Spanish speaking engineers that we had very early on. This was before the linguists came in. And, right. uh, before the linguists, <laughs> it was before the people with classroom experience, for example, yeah. teaching Spanish came in. And, and, and before I even started, and, and I was the one who kind of introduced the CEFR to the company. So for, for years, we kind of had this, like things were organized in case your listeners haven't actually used Duolingo. Uh, uh, lessons are organized into these skills, which can be either thematic or, you know, like at the restaurant. And so you learn a bunch of words about ordering food at the restaurant uh, or animals or family or, uh, or in some cases, you know, they're, they're more grammatical in nature. So you'll learn about the past tense in this, in this skill. Uh, And so we had these arbitrary skills that were just like, here are 25 animals. And even though you're a beginner and you don't really need to know how to say pangolin in Spanish, uh, you know, we're going to teach it to you anyway, just because it was just like this, this vocabulary core dump. Yeah. Uh, so in the process of going through and revising the courses over time to make them aligned to the CEFR, uh, tools like this uh, are th- the kinds of things that we use to, to both inspire and sort of quality control check the content as it's being developed. Mm-hmm. And are there other ways that ML is used in the, the content development and programming team? I'm thinking of trying to think of all, you know, either experiences with the app or issues with the app, or I think one kind of recurring theme is, or at least something that would be important for an app like this is kind of the relevancy of the terms and the constructs that you're learning. And you kind of alluded to this with the pangolin comment. You want the sentence that the app is teaching you to be representative of the kind of language that you see out in the wild. Like I I imagine that one could create a tool that would sanity check a curricula like Duolingo's for, you know, relevancy. I've, I remember a lot of folks might not know this, but you've got, there are very active Duolingo forums and entire communities around like beta versions of languages and stuff like that, that most people don't see in the app. And you'll see folks talking about how, you know, either complaining about the usage in, in a, a particular question or phrase or, you know, complaining about the relevancy of, you know, given phrases. And it seems like that's something you can develop a tool that would, you know, compare against, you know, uh, popular media and determine the relevancy. Yeah, that that's something uh, that we have talked about. We actually haven't started a project using machine learning to do that. And it, but a very similar adjacent thing is, is in the questions that we give you, particularly the translation exercises, and then also sometimes the, the transcription when you listen and try to transcribe what you heard. But anytime you're entering in something in the language, you might like you may submit something that you're pretty sure you got right, but you're graded as wrong. Yeah. And, and it's also it's very difficult to capture all possible 
you know, language is very flexible and expressive. So if you're given a prompt in English that can be translated into Spanish, uh, you know, there's there's hundreds of valid, you know, Spanish translations of the sentence. Mm-hmm. And so we write things uh, essentially like regular expressions to sort of capture all the possible different ways that you could say it. But, you know, the content matter experts who develop this might miss some or might forget some of there's one particular synonym or, um, you know, idiomatic turn of phrase that they, they skip. When you're graded wrong, there's a little report this button. Mm-hmm. And if you hit that button, then it goes into a big queue. And we get about, I, I think, a half a million of those a week. And so it's impossible for for the content developers and, and for some of the, the smaller courses uh, like Klingon and you know, Irish Gaelic, there are, uh, you know, volunteers who actually, uh, yeah. contributors who, who maintain. Dothraki. We don't have Dothraki. We do have High no. Valyrian. We do have High Valyrian, which was actually created by David P- Peterson, Patterson, the, the linguist who created those languages for Game of Thrones. Okay. He actually approached us and said, I love Duolingo. I love the incubator, which is the platform where we crowdsource these languages. Yeah. I want to create a High Valyrian course. So we were like, yeah, have at it. And there's also like, is there Elvish and a bunch of the languages from Lord of the Rings or? I don't think we have any Lord of the Rings languages. Okay. But but people, you know, criticize us all the time for, you know, you're, you're not teaching. For a long time, we didn't have an Arabic course. We launched that last summer. So people were kind of like, what is your, you know, you're teaching Klingon, but you're not teaching Arabic. Yeah. And, and part of it is the fact that a rabid community approached us and, and volunteered to create the Cleon course, right? So, huh. but getting back to the the reports, uh, when those come in, we have a, a machine learning model that will prior, help prioritize which are the ones that are likely to be correct translations. Uh, and this uses a combination of kind of like linguistic distance from the things we do already accept and what this particular submission was, as well as, you know, who was it that submitted it? Do they have a track record of submitting, you know, good things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then also like historical data about what did and didn't get uh, approved. And then, um, so we have this tool and it's been extremely important for a lot of the mature courses, it's, it's, it's less important, but when a new course like Arabic, for example, when we first launched it before, Latin and Arabic and Scottish Gaelic, which were the first three courses to launch that we created after we created this tool, even though we didn't have any training data in those languages yet, uh, it generalized well to those languages. Previous to that, it took about six months for a course, a new course to graduate out of beta, which among other things, like one of the key things there is that the number of reports that comes in is below a certain threshold. Uh, the number of reports per session or something. And after, you know, this tool was available after those courses launched and they graduated from beta in like five weeks as of six months. Uh, Oh, very interesting. And so that's the, the content side. I'm also wondering if there are applications of, you know, language models, GPT-3 types of uh, models on the, the content side as well. Is that something you're looking at? Uh, potentially. We're, we're looking at those sorts of models, not so much for content creation, but for some, some features you might be seeing over the next six months or so that are more uh, kind of interactive feedback on things. Uh, so currently, a lot of the Duolingo experience is 
translating or transcribing these kind of rote things, and you're not necessarily producing language uh, spontaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're working on some features that would allow you to do that and some language models that can give you feedback. Mm, interesting. Uh, this is maybe less, I, I'm trying to remember the buckets. Was assessment separate from content? Well, assessment is sort of related to the, what I said at the beginning, I think was content, you know, keeping you engaged with the material and then getting inside your head. Yeah. And assessment is related to that last one. So if you think about a good interactive tutor, they're constantly assessing you as they're teaching you. Yeah. Uh, and so a good interactive, personalized, adaptive language system or, or learning uh, educational system of any platform, we just happen to be language, would be assessing you as well. So we have, it's actually very related to active learning, which is the what I did my PhD in that we talked about earlier. If you think about like an active learning system, it can look at a bunch of unlabeled data and say, this I understand, this I understand, this confuses me, please label this. Mm -hmm. And a corollary to that is, if I'm a machine learning system that is trying to teach you something, I have a, a mental model of what you know. I think you understand this. I don't think you're ready for this yet. This is in the zone of proximal development is, is what it's sometimes called. Uh, so I'm going to give you uh, material in this area. So it's right on the margin. You know, this is something that confuses me about what you know and don't. So it probably confuses you in terms of what you know and you don't. And so we use those kinds of models both for personalized learning and for computer adaptive testing in the Duolingo English test. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has really changed language learning over the past, I don't know, 10 years, let's say, for just to throw a number out there, is I think the kind of the mainstreaming of this whole idea of spaced repetition and mm -hmm. kind of systems, uh, a ton of systems that are based on spaced repetition. Basically, uh, some system trying to, you know, learn what you know and focus your learning effort on the things that you don't know as opposed to, you know, continuing to reinforce the things that you've probably already committed to memory. And uh, this idea that you're describing of active learning kind of takes space rec repetition, you know, one step further because it's building this mental model of, of what you know and what you probably need to be refreshed of or on versus not as opposed to, uh, I think the original spaced repetition models were based on this, the idea of a deck of cards and you would put things in different places in this deck and that would dictate how often you see them. Yeah, actually, so uh, I published a paper in 2016 in the Association of Computational Linguistics about the spaced repetition model that we use uh, at Duolingo. So it, that was actually one of my first projects back in 2013 when I first joined. Oh, wow. So when I first joined, we had one of these flashcard algorithms that was yeah. you know, designed in the 70s back when you had physical flashcards. So that's what was running in production to select the exercises that you would see when you did a practice. So there were there are lessons where you're being introduced to new material in Duolingo, and then there are practice sessions uh, where you're reviewing old material that can either be within a particular skill that you did, or you can just like the whole course, everything that you've learned so far, you can practice all of it. So the the, the algorithm that was used in production before I started was called the Leitner system. And there's a few different flavors of it, but, but the one that was in production is this idea that you've got a different box 
And there's the one-day box and the two-day box and the four-day box, and they grow, go up exponentially in powers of two. Uh, and everything starts in the one-day box. And then when you practice something, if you get it right, it graduates to the two-day box. And then you can wait two days to review it. And then if you practice it again two days later and you get it right, then it can graduate to the four-day box and, and so on and so forth. And, and that way you can, if you consistently keep doing well, you can push it off longer and longer. Uh, but then if you get it wrong, then it demotes back to the previous box. And so it cuts the, the spacing in half. So that's what we had in production. You know, there was, there was some rationale for it. But I quickly realized that that algorithm is essentially two to the power of the number of times you got it right and the number of times you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. So you can turn that into, you know, a, a model that is like number of times right is a feature with a coefficient of plus one and number of times wrong is a feature with a coefficient of minus one. Mm. And you can learn those plus ones and minus ones from data rather than just like picking those kind of arbitrary numbers. Yeah. It turns out the Pimsler method that he published a schedule, yeah. Pimsler published a schedule in 67, I think, that also turns out to be a special case of this. So we, oh, really? Yeah. So we, we called it half life regression because it's essentially a nonlinear regression on with this kind of inductive bias of this half-life, it's not exactly a slope, but like decay rate. And turns out both the Leitner system and the Pimsleur method are special cases of that model. And we were able to fit a model to data and then put, we ran a controlled A-B test putting that into production. And to this day, it's probably one of the most impactful, impactful experiments that we've done. I think there was a 12% boost in retention and and by that, I don't mean mental retention. I mean, like, a user used the app one day and came back the next day. Got it. Early, in the very early days, in the first year or two of the company, that's the main metric that we looked at. Yeah. Uh, well, it can be really frustrating when you're present. You, you've got some set block of time that you want to spend, you know, learning your language, whether you're on the bus or a train or whatever, or, you know, you just block out the time and, if you spend half of that time reviewing cards that you've already committed to memory, that is terribly frustrating. Yeah. And, and one thing that we're running into now is like, we really, that was an early kind of success of mine and I've gone on to do other things and nobody's really been working on that for seven years. And, and our user base has changed. We have more courses now we've got mm -hmm. orders of magnitude, more users. Now the amount of content has changed. So that model that was in production probably is not ecologically valid anymore. We do have a research scientist who this past quarter has started revisiting those, and we've got some promising alternatives um, that we're about to start running some experiments to try to improve on. So that it, it's still the case that some people, you know, hey, this is basics one at the beginning of the tree. Why is it telling me I need to practice this now? I know that stuff backward and forward. And some yeah. of it is just an artifact of, the fact that when we first fit the models, there were like only a hundred thousand users and uh, you know six courses. So yeah, wow. So you you made this distinction between human or learner retention and uh, the your SAS metric of retention. I imagine though that you are also trying to understand the human learner metrics. You know, to what degree do you go after that? How difficult is it to go after that? And is there a role, uh, you know, of machine learning in trying to understand, you know, the the user experience, the learner experience? 
Yeah, that's a very, very important question. Uh, and it's a very difficult question. So most startups, most companies, really, there's different families of, of metrics that you look at. All right. And all companies, of course, look at revenue. That's one that's super important. Most apps and things also look at engagement. So how growth, you know, how many people are using it. But we have this additional family of metrics on learning uh, that most other companies don't have. And it's easy to kind of look at what other companies are doing to, to optimize, you know, revenue and engagement. There's nobody else to look to to really figure out how to, to measure and improve learning. And one way you could do that is by look at which exercises they get right or wrong. And are these exercises that they got wrong six months ago? Or are they getting them right now? And we do do some of that, but it's still very challenging because this it's this endogenous reasoning, you know, uh, what you're showing them is sort of priming them on, on what they're, uh, they're getting right and wrong. But about a year ago, we created a, an efficacy team within the company that has started to do some longer term sort of research. And just a month or two ago, we, we published a, a white paper. Uh, I think if you go to duolingo.com slash efficacy, you can find a summary of it and, and actually download the white paper. The main results were essentially for learners of French and Spanish. So English speakers learning French and Spanish. Mm -hmm. There was reaching checkpoint five uh, of the course, which is probably, uh, I don't know exactly how many skills that is, but it's, I'm going to guess it's on the order of 20 or 25 skills. So after doing 25 skills in Duolingo, you're, performing, at least in terms of listening and reading, uh, at the level of somebody who's finished four or five college semesters. And so there's, some, there's mounting evidence that this kind of personalization that we're doing uh, through machine learning uh, to build good content, to you know, create engagement, and to personalize through getting inside your head is working. And, and do you also, using the using the separate tools that we talked about earlier, you should be all, also able to relate that level five knowledge base to uh, a Sefer level? Uh, yes, you, you could. I mean, the problem, the difficulty in doing that is you need to get parallel data to do some mapping and equating, mm -hmm. uh, but that's definitely something you could do. I mean, a, an analogous thing, we, we could maybe switch gears and talk about the dueling, the Duolingo English test, because this is related, you know, it is an assessment. Mm -hmm. And the idea there was... But before we do that, well, another question on assessment. In some of the tests, there are, if I remember correctly, there are uh, assessments where you're speaking into the, into your device, and it is um, essentially doing a speech recognition and trying to tell you if you've got that correct. And I'm curious how, you know, machine learning oriented that is or technically, you know, sophisticated that is. I remember, I don't remember when I was trying to learn a tonal language like Mandarin, like if it was really all that sophisticated at telling one tone from another. I know that when I got there, no one understood a word that I said. So clearly the tones, I was not learning them all that well. But, um, you know, how, how much ML is going into, like, the speech side of things? In the, in the Duolingo learning app, up until very recently, it was fairly rudimentary. And, and to be honest, we were relying on 
like the on-app uh, services like the Siri and the Google uh, ASR systems and, and also relying on um, TTS that were third-party provided. Okay. Uh, this, this year, we've actually hired uh, more people, in particular somebody who used to work on the Siri team, who's starting to beef that up. And so over we, we have reached the point where we've hit a ceiling of what we can do effectively in the learning app using third-party tools. And now we're starting to build it out uh, in-house with some promising early results. So you should see that starting to be pushed out into the app, particularly for the, the more popular courses like English for Spanish and Portuguese speakers or French and Spanish for English speakers. Uh, but on the on the Duolingo English test side of things, there are also speaking exercises that you have to do, both the sort of thing where you're 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 given a prompt and you have to say this kind of scripted thing, as well as just completely open-ended exercises, like you're given a an image and you just have to talk about that picture for two or three minutes, or maybe one or two minutes. Yeah. Um, so for those, we do have. Uh, more that sounds like a really interesting yeah, NLP machine learning question answering potentially type of uh, challenge. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty challenging. And another thing that is very important to us is to make sure that those models are fair across that uh, males and females have different vocal registers. Uh, so if you have lopsided data in some sort of way, it could you know be automatically scoring one group. Uh, with higher scores than the other group for irrelevant reasons, different accents, so that the speech recognition that is used as a part of that uh, scoring algorithm features are extracted from the ASR. It might work better for some accents than others, and you need to make sure that it's fair. Uh, so we've put a lot of effort into making sure that happens. We've done a lot of you know, what's called differential item functioning in the psychometrics uh, literature, uh, make sure that the items are not behaving differently uh, for different groups. So those are some of the challenges of building the test. But another challenge is your traditional uh, test, and this is true for like all kinds of educational high stakes tests. They're usually done at a test center. Right. Uh, and so that means by definition, there's only a few of them. They're in certain cities. Uh, there's a, a finite number of seats that are available. They're not open every day. More expensive they're, to take and deliver. They're more expensive to take and deliver. And there's this, and the assumption is because it's in this place, it is, you know, there are security protocols that are sort right. of in place. Right. Um, the day off of work usually because they're, you know, businesses. Right. But if you're, if you're from like, if, if you're in the rural Amazon, right, then that means you have to take a 14-hour bus ride into, I don't know, Sao Paulo or something to take the tests, probably spend the night. And then if there's a trucker strike that shuts down the highway for a day, the day before you're going to take your test, you're out of luck. Yeah. And so we, we needed, it was part of our goals in creating this test that is something that anybody anywhere, you know, could take. Uh, as, I mean, as long as they had an internet-connected device. That also means that... You know, one way to cheat on a traditional kind of test is, you know, you take the test and then you you somehow, you know, circulate the items that were in that test mm -hmm. online so that in very short order, anybody who is taking an administration within the next 48 hours has access to the questions and, and uh, they can get better scores. This, by definition, is a test that is an, in an uncontrolled environment. So our strategy and in combating that was to make it a computer adaptive test with a huge 
number of items. The only way to scalably, and, and the reason that makes it more secure is when you go in and take the test, like every time you take it, if you take the test 10 times, it's going to be a different set of questions every time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the item exposure rate is less than a half a percent, maybe less than a tenth of a percent. Yeah, you would have to take the test a thousand times to see the same item again on average. And the way we accomplish that is through machine learning. So all of all of the items are automatically generated. And then we use the same or very similar techniques to create the CEFR lined tools. We also then project the items that we automatically generate onto a CEFR aligned scale using machine learning. So this is a B2 level question, and this is an A1 level question. And then we can adaptively, you know, we'll start out giving you a B1 level question. If you do well on that, then we'll jump up to a B2 or a C2, C1 level question. And if you do not as well on that, you know, we'll back off to a B2 level question and we can zero in on your language proficiency. And when you're starting this process and generating questions or texts, what type of generation are we talking about? Generation from, you know, straight from the model or generation via selection from in the wild text that you know are valid and make sense? Uh, and what all goes into that? So right now it's a lot of the latter, what you just said. It, it, it depends on the item type. So there are several different item types. We actually just published a paper this year in Transactions of the Association of Computational Linguistics laying out the approach to the first version of the test. So that paper, even though it was just published a few months ago, is already obsolete. Uh, but there are several different item types that go back decades in the language testing literature that are things that are easy to produce automatically and to grade automatically. And so we'll, we'll take texts from naturally occurring sources, authentic texts is what the language assessment folks would say. And then one of the items is called the C-test, where every other word, you remove the second half of the word, and then the task is to fill in the missing blanks, which seems like a really simple task, really, really hard to do if you don't know the language. Mm -hmm. um, and what we can do then is we have a, a pretty good model to rank order, this is a, an A2 level text because the language in it is pretty concrete. There's not a, a lot of abstract ideas. It's like informational. And then as you move up the levels that can become more academic and more, not only does the vocabulary become more sophisticated, but the, the content, you know, it's trying to argue a viewpoint or discuss abstract concepts. Uh, so those are the sorts of things that the ML models pick up on and we use these authentic texts to create the items and then the ML models to project them onto the scale. And then we use adaptive kind of active learning type algorithms to then search through the, that space to uh, efficiently figure out where you belong on that scale. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So that's uh, kind of content and assessment, a little bit of getting in your head, engagement. Let's yeah. spend a few minutes on that. Yeah, uh, so this is probably where to date we've invested the least, and I'm looking forward to growing the team and, and doing more work in this. But a good example of that is we send out these, uh, if you've used the Duolingo app, you've probably gotten and maybe been annoyed by, you know, these push notifications that are practice reminders to remind you to use the app, you know, or you'll lose your streak or something like yeah. that. <laughs> and so we actually use uh, machine learning to determine 
what message to send you when we, we send you those. We also actually experimented with using machine learning to figure out when to send those to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had fairly accurate models that could figure out, you know, that some people have different patterns on the weekends versus the weekdays or whatnot. It turns out that those, that those, those timing models, even though they were very accurate, they just didn't make a difference in terms of the metrics compared to some pretty good heuristics that we developed that were simple heuristics. And so in the end, we actually are not using machine learning to do the timing because it wasn't worth the technical debt of the machine learning. But we do right. use it to pick the content. And we actually have a, a KDD paper this year about that. It's a banded algorithm. It's actually a novel algorithm because there are two things in using banded algorithms for push notifications, at least the way we do it, that are kind of out of the box. And one of them is that not every template that we could send you is viable at every time. So we might want to send you a message that says, you know, uh, keep your streak or, or don't forget uh, your streak, which is like the number of consecutive days that you've been using Duolingo. But if your streak is one or zero or something, we don't want to send you that particular one. Uh, or another one uh, is like, if you are on the leaderboard, if you're in a certain position in the leaderboard, we might send you a message about that, but it's only eligible if, if you're on a leaderboard. That counts, right? And so that messes up the statistics uh, a little What's bit. The universe of how big is the message space? I would have imagined that that would be relatively small, like half a dozen, and machine learning wouldn't be all that interesting as a way to optimize these messages. No, we have hundreds. We have hundreds, and they also are translated into all the different languages, because remember, we've got about half of people using Duolingo are learning English from a variety of other languages, from, you know, like, uh, you know, Arabic to Spanish to Chinese. So we have to localize all of those. And the messages culturally perform differently for different groups. Sure. And so that's one problem is the eligibility criteria, which kind of screws up the statistics a little bit. And then the other problem is this novelty effect, where if we send you the same, like the banded algorithm figures out, oh, yeah, time for your Spanish lesson. That's the number one that we should always send that. Right. Very quickly, you'll burn out on that message. And so we had to introduce kind of this cognitive penalty which is very related to spaced repetition. We actually borrowed a lot of the same work from uh, seven years ago on spaced repetition and baked it into this bandit model. And so to us, it seemed like it was a, it was a novel algorithm. So we submitted a paper and it presented it, I guess, last month. Oh, wow. And in terms of the, you know, comparison to a relatively simple heuristic type of an approach, like how do you characterize, I imagine you're characterized that in terms of engagement lift. Like what is that? How significant is the difference of the uh, uh, machine learning oh, approach, the heuristic approach? Uh, I think it was a two don't you know don't send a, a streak message if there's no streak. Don't send uh, you know the other one if that doesn't apply. Oh and well, rotate them you know equally. I, I believe what we had been doing before uh, it was wasn't a heuristic as much as like these are all the things that are eligible at this time. Yeah. Pick one at random. That's right. what we were doing, yeah. which, which gave us, you know, really good kind of like training data to start with because it was a relatively representative sample. In general, you try to in production kind of industry machine learning use heuristics where possible, 
as long as you can fit it in your head. <laughs> that's that's a good heuristic. You know, mm -hmm. if the heuristic can fit in your head, or or uh, you don't have to draw a flowchart for somebody else to understand it. And if it's doing well, stick with that for now. If it gets to the point where you can't keep it in your head, or you have to draw a flowchart to explain it to somebody else, that's when you should start using machine learning. Uh, or when you've iterated on the heuristics to the point where you're just getting diminishing returns, usually like whatever branches are in that heuristic, turn those into features and apply machine learning, and you'll usually get a lift. At least that's been our experience. So in this particular case, you know, we hadn't really tried any heuristics beyond randomly sampling because none of them made sense that wouldn't become immediately very complicated. Uh, so machine learning seemed like the way to go. Interesting. Interesting. Any other things that you're doing on the engagement front? Uh, that's probably the best example to talk about now. And I yeah. think we're going on for a while, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is, uh, I just popped my, uh, my timer up here. We have been, um, but definitely a fascinating conversation. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, I could continue on, uh, indefinitely, but we, uh, want to be conscious of our listeners' uh, attention span as well. But it has been great chatting with you about some of the things that Duolingo is doing to you know, help people learn languages using machine learning and AI. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thanks so much, Burr. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.